welcome to this episode of Behind the Dirt, where we discuss the industry of CRM, archaeology, and the tribal perspectives that inform it. My name is Brendan Slattery, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the industry's history in the United States and how tribal communities have been at the center of this development, both directly and indirectly. When someone asks me what an archaeologist does, they first ask, how many dinosaur bones have you found? Then after I disappoint them by stating that I only study historic and prehistoric human societies, they immediately think of someone like Indiana Jones fighting Nazis, climbing into ancient temples, dodging deadly traps, and looting the artifacts within. While this life does sound exciting, if a little problematic, it is drastically different from the reality of what archaeology is today. Most of our time is spent walking around a project area, looking at the ground, taking notes of observations, and sometimes doing excavation. They may then ask, how do you even make money as an archaeologist? Who pays you? Are you just traveling around the world all the time and visiting cultural sites? What is the coolest thing you've ever found? That last question is hard to answer. But while some archaeologists in the United States take a traditional academic route and focus on research by working with universities, most work in an industry called Cultural Resource Management, or CRM. In fact, roughly 80% of archaeologists in the United States work in the private sector, or government regulatory agencies in the CRM industry. But cultural resources was generally thought of for the longest time as artifacts just found in the ground that archaeologists dug up. But it also includes other things pertaining to human culture, religion, and subsistence that involve other anthropological fields. Now, what is CRM? To fully understand what archaeologists and CRM firms do, we must start by answering the question, what even is archaeology? And why are we doing it for companies and agencies across the country that have nothing to do with studying people? Archaeology is the study of human culture through the materials they make or alter. One key aspect of archaeology is the destruction of its subject matter. When we excavate something, that moment in history that has been buried for ages becomes just an object, or even worse, gets destroyed which is why modern archaeology has been fine-tuning its recording techniques since its inception in the field of academia and in governmental pursuits. These facts, though, make archaeology a complicated and sometimes invasive action that now must consider the damage done to the cultural material and the relations with all its stakeholders, primarily native and descended communities that still live in these areas. The origins of archaeology and the interests in human history go back much further than the 150 years the named academic field of study in Western societies has existed. Humans are generally curious about our past and have tried to pass down that knowledge in various ways. Although there have been times when this practice was reduced to relic hunting and grave robbing to be used as status or wealth signifiers and furthering colonial agendas, Humanity's fascination with the past has been evident since we could communicate. One of the oldest practices of passing down history is oral history, or communicating stories concerning the past via word of mouth. Many contemporary groups of people continue to pass their records down through storytelling. Petroglyphs and pictographs are probably the earliest form of passing this knowledge in the material record. While the imagery takes time and some cultural understanding to decode, 
cultural knowledge of everything from day-to-day -day activities and myths to recording historical events is preserved for several millennia in places worldwide. Some of the oldest examples of petroglyphs and pictographs that have been recorded range from 15,000 years in North America to 50,000 years in Eurasia. Powerful rulers or elites throughout history had taken it upon themselves to excavate ancient remnants of societies in many places around the world. Nabonidus, the king of Neo-Babylon around 550 BC, found and analyzed foundation deposits in Sippar, near modern-day Baghdad, linked to King Niram Sin, who lived and ruled the Akkadian Empire thousands of years earlier, around 2200 BC. Despite being driven by their more self-serving desire to restore their kingdom to what they considered to be their former glory, by finding and repairing the buildings lost to tonight, Nabonidus was the first to date an archaeological artifact. His notes even read like a modern archaeologist, complete with measurements and descriptions. For example, on an object known as the Cylinder of Nabonidus, which is now an artifact of its own, the king wrote of his finding in the Temple of Sippar upon this clay cylinder in cuneiform that reads, The temple I excavated, its ancient foundation stone I sought, fifteen square cubits. I dug down for the foundation stone of Neremsin, the son of Sargon, which for three thousand two hundred years no king my predecessor had seen. Now, Nabonidus of Neo-Babylonia is often referred to as the first archaeologist because he took the time to record and establish what researchers call provenience, which describes the object's historical origins in time and place. Despite being off by 1,500 years, his estimates are somewhat accurate without any of the modern artifact dating techniques we use today. More examples of people recording ancient artifacts have been seen throughout history, from ancient Greece to imperial China. For instance, Egyptian pharaohs of the New Kingdom would pillage the tombs of previous rulers and take objects that symbolized political and spiritual power that would, in turn, be buried with them once they died. So there was a cycle of looting for the sake of erasing a ruler they disagreed with from history, or reinforcing the perceived greatness of the current king by collecting these objects and burying them with the current ruler to be taken to the afterlife. Antiquarians in Europe would also excavate places known to hold ancient artifacts from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, where most were on display among wealthy Europeans as private collections that acted as both a curiosity and a status symbol amongst the wealth view. In the 18th and 19th centuries, European nation-state governments became interested in these ancient objects. As a result, they began nationalizing their efforts to recover and study these objects. Much of the reason was tied to myths and perceptions of older civilizations as significant, wealthy, or more sophisticated, from ancient Greece to El Dorado. And obtaining artifacts tied to their culture would acclaim their power and knowledge. One of the most famous and perhaps most controversial examples of these is the British Museum, that despite having one of the most extensive collections of artifacts in the world, a large portion of their collection is the result of colonial endeavors brought on by Britain's imperialist ventures across the globe in taking historical objects while subjugating and murdering the people that they belong to.
But it wasn't just England. The French military dictator Napoleon's conquests in Egypt led to the creation of one of the most well-known forms of archaeology known as Egyptology, and the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, regarded as one of Egyptology's most significant finds for decoding the hieroglyphs. Alongside his many legions of 54,000 men, Napoleon brought an army of 150 artists, scholars, and archaeologists eager to study Egypt's culture. While these savants were genuinely interested in studying the culture they were excavating, the sheer amount of destruction wrought upon the sites they dug was staggering. Nevertheless, many pieces from these expeditions remain in European museums to this day. That belongs in a museum! So do you! The governments of Greece, Egypt, and several other African countries that have had their cultural resources plundered by European countries have been petitioning to have much of these finds returned, but have yet to be successful. The United States of America has had a long history of this as well, dating back to when the first colonizers set foot on these shores. Thomas Jefferson was one such individual who led an excavation, largely powered through African slave labor, of native burial mounds on his estate in Virginia. His belief in the idea of the quote, vanishing Indian was ironic, since the country he helped create was causing the destruction. His motivation and justification for this excavation was described by Smithsonian Magazine as, quote, a myth history of the 18th and 19th centuries that depicted Native Americans as a vanishing race, incapable of adapting to the new American civilization. The sentimentalized ideal of the vanishing Indian, seen as noble but ultimately doomed to be vanquished by a superior white civilization, held that these vanishing people, their customs, beliefs, and practices must be documented for posterity." End quote. There's a metaphor for American history in there somewhere. These realities have shed some light on the fact that the study of archaeology and material culture historically has been a political act of cultural genocide by colonial forces that, by stealing the history of these people, their existence could be fetishized as a curiosity and ultimately erased. When we come back, we will talk about how the U.S. government has implemented laws and regulations over time in an attempt to right these wrongs, leading to the creation of cultural resource management and its effectiveness in mitigating damage to these resources. Much of archaeology in the United States had been managed by private entities and small local governments since the creation of the Library of Congress in 1800 up until the 20th century. So in a way, this was the start of CRM in the United States, by having the Library of Congress keep a record of archaeological and ethnographic studies conducted in the country. But there needed to be more meaningful infrastructure that could enforce any sort of regulation. Not that any effective regulation or protections existed for people whose material culture and remains were being taken. Until the 20th century, nothing legal could prevent people from looting artifacts from cultural sites colloquially known as pot hunting. These pot hunters, domestic and from abroad, continued the tradition of stealing artifacts considered to have monetary value at the expense of indigenous communities' rapidly disappearing cultural fabric. 
The mindset instilled by former U.S. governmental policies of Western expansion, inspired by a borrowing language from Manifest Destiny, led to colonizing white Americans engaging in looting and culturally destructive activities. Despite some archaeologists trying to record and preserve as much as possible, the knowledge gleaned from archaeological digs paled compared to the artifact looting. Even through archaeological study, many sites were destroyed, artifacts removed, placed in storage, human remains disturbed, and sacred sites desecrated, regardless of the researchers' intentions. In 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt and his administration passed the Antiquities Act in response to this phenomenon. One example of this phenomenon was Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, one of the most stunning cultural sites in both the Southwest and the United States in general. With multi-story, densely concentrated buildings constructed against cliff walls and on top of seemingly inaccessible mesas that had been looted extensively by pot hunters, had served as inspiration for the Antiquities Act. The prominent architectural complexes at the site were the culmination and consolidation of thousands of people who had been living in the canyon that reached its population peak around 800 AD to 1140 AD. Hundreds of apartments, large subterranean circular meeting areas called kivas, and great houses are connected to form the large structure that punctuates the canyon landscape in which the site resides. Irrigation systems, roadways, and outposts dotted and crisscrossed the landscape. Naturally, this site contained an immense number of artifacts and cultural material that drew the attention of the Hyde Exploring Expedition, owned by Talbot and Fred Hyde Jr., who were heirs to a soap-making company from 1893 to 1899. Back then, archaeology was still hanging on to its reputation as a wealthy person's pastime, that people like the Hyde heirs had taken an interest in. They excavated over 60,000 objects and sent them off to New York with little documentation, severely impacting the condition of the site, which the Roosevelt administration felt called for legal action. An archaeologist who worked in New Mexico for a local university, Edgar L. Hewitt, conducted studies that recorded the extent of these sites and was alarmed by the damage the Hyde Exploring Expedition was causing. His and others' work directly led to the creation of the Antiquities Act, and his work directly shaped what the law looked like. The Antiquities Act essentially stated that looting on federal land was illegal and allowed the president to establish national monuments to mitigate the damage caused by looting and environmental resource use. However, the language of the law was considered very broad giving little distinction between modern and historical indigenous cultural movements in existence, and needed more management systems to enforce. The creation of many of these monuments has had controversial side effects that included the creation of national monuments to displace native communities and further the United States policy of eliminating native people from their land to preserve them for white Americans. Many have argued that the Antiquities Act was used mainly as a tool for economic and nationalist purposes, and a way for early corporate America to greenwash their destruction of the environment to improve public relations. An example of this is John D. Rockefeller's purchase of over 30,000 acres of land in Wyoming, which he gifted to the federal government leading to the creation of the Grand Teton National Park at a place known as Jackson Hole. However, Rockefeller also owned Standard Oil, 
which had been destroying much of the landscape across America and running into public perception problems. Much like how the Sackler family funded the arts and humanities while profiting from the opioid epidemic since the 1950s, they mostly took a page out of the Rockefeller's handbook with the lesson that public service can almost excuse any transgression in America. A dissertation titled Intersections and Detours Tracing Standard Oil's Trails Through the Grand Teton National Park by Lori Heek mentions that, quote, much of the public's opposition to creating a national park in Jackson Hole centered upon the area's long human inhabitation, first by Native Americans and then by Anglo agriculturalists and ranchers. The team's rhetoric reframed this history, making the goal simply to, quote, preserve a truly great wilderness area, all parts of it wonderfully scenic and great cave ranges still unspoiled, unquote. The Rockefeller team then went on to mythologize the history of Jackson Hole and completely omitted the Native American presence, and in this way, contributed to the Manifest Destiny narrative that had been the U.S. policy towards Native peoples and descendants since the founding of the country. Much like the Egyptian pharaohs I mentioned before, history was used as an almost secular divine right to claim the power, and in this case, land, of the people who came before them. Their desire was to preserve the victory of white men pioneers over the indigenous population for future generations while simultaneously removing the descendants from the land upon which they lived and depended on since time immemorial. The many indigenous communities' fishing areas, hunting grounds, and plant gathering rights have been pushed back and restricted to the government's designated reservation lands. This was merely a continuation of colonial settlers stealing of land and resources from people who had inhabited the land for thousands of years and had already been subjugated for over a century by this point. An article on the National Park Service's website details some of this occurring at the same time in the Southwest by stating, quote, Because American settlers and soldiers had successfully appropriated traditional lands, many Native communities struggled for survival. Native Americans, in large measure, had been pushed to marginal regions and no longer had easy access to traditional areas for hunting wild animals and gathering vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The growing Anglo population of the Southwest in the late 1800s, the boom of the cattle industry, and the discovery of silver and copper deposits also strained riverian resources and farming infrastructure." The Antiquities Act did little to preserve cultural resources as no one had been prosecuted under the law until the 1970s. The native people were driven from these sites in the name of science and preservation. Moreover, the acquisition of land by Anglo settlers was not slowing down during the 19th and early 20th centuries, given the creation of the Indian Removal Act and the Dawes Act, forcing hundreds of thousands of indigenous people to abandon their ancestral lands and forced them into the American capitalist system, and that the Antiquities Act aimed to preserve what anthropologists considered to be important scientific sites and objects, but failed to recognize the importance to modern descendant communities. And the looting continued. Throughout the progression of the 20th century, the Department of the Interior began to create separate government agencies like the National Park Service to maintain and monitor these new monuments and whose responsibility it was to protect all resources, both natural and cultural. Despite the cultural disconnect between subsistent lifeways for the tribes in those areas, 
and the United States' desire for tourism revenue. When we come back, we'll talk more about the actions of the U.S. government in the 20th century up until the present, and the work of activists to change how the government handles cultural resources after a long history of destruction, and what role archaeologists played in that movement. From 1935 to 1943, Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal helped to create the Works Progress Administration, which aimed to supercharge the economy after the Great Depression by contracting workers for fields involving intensive labor, and archaeology was one such field. For the first time, archaeology was a method of employment for many Americans. Archaeological knowledge and research skyrocketed and a few scholars rose to prominence during this time due to the immense amount of work being conducted, especially in the Southeast United States. However, a few aspects of this push were problematic, to say the least. One of them was excavation for the sake of excavation, instead of being used to answer research questions. Archaeologists also grew concerned about the need for more publication and analysis on many of these projects. Scientific methods seemed too cumbersome for laborers who worked on these projects, and much of the work was seen as an unrealistic bureaucratic expectation. These issues would be addressed in the 1960s and 70s, which we'll get to in a moment. In the 1950s, the United States Army Corps of Engineers, at the behest of President Eisenhower, carried out a big push of infrastructure projects that included dams, highways, and reservoirs. This did irreparable harm to cultural and sacred sites, including many that were important to the river tribes of Oregon and Washington. But this occurred nationally, while the U.S. government tried to assimilate indigenous people into the quote-unquote melting pot of America, stripping them of their customs, traditions, languages, and the ways of life. There was an enormous backlash in the 1960s to this reckless destruction of cultural history, and the dissolution of existing indigenous communities. In the following Indian civil rights movement, the focus was shifted to reclaiming lands taken by the U.S. government and establishing cultural roots. In addition, the government's push for rapid urban renewal and its effects on cultural sites was brought to their attention by activists. At the same time, African Americans began taking an interest in their own cultural history within the colonial context of America as the fight for civil rights was underway and demanded that their cultural material be respected. Once the federal government realized that preserving these places and materials was in the public's interest, it enacted the National Historic Preservation Act, NHPA, in 1966. This law prompted the National Park Service to create the National Register of Historic Places, which kept a record of these resources for the government's agencies. In the 1970s, the Office of Archaeology and Historic Preservation 
Now later, the Bureau of Land Management was created and hired archaeologists to conduct work on government lands to record, excavate, and preserve cultural resources within their jurisdictions. It began referring to this practice as, quote, cultural resource management. This signaled the birth of CRM. This system still exists in the industry today as archaeologists work with state, local, and federal agencies with other laws that govern how this work is done. This law included clauses like sections 106 and 110, which mandated that these agencies evaluate all cultural sites and their eligibility for the National Register. The law also created the Secretary Standard for Archaeology and Historic Preservation, which outlined field methods and special qualifications for paid archaeologists to handle these cultural resources. Shortly after, the Indian Self-Determination and Education Act was instituted in 1975, which gave tribal governments the ability to have more control over the responsibilities and programs administered by the federal government that involved Native people. It also included sacred sites and natural resources vital to all tribes and held cultural significance worth protecting. The Bureau of Indian Affairs website states that, quote, the act assured that Indian tribes had paramount involvement in the direction of services provided by the federal government in an attempt to target the delivery of such services to the needs and desires of local communities. Quote. One of these services included CRM, conducted by archaeologists, who finally started to consult tribal governments for their projects. These laws and the rise of the State Historical Preservation Offices, or SHPOs, signaled a more systemized and standardized approach to preserving and archiving cultural resources significant to tribes in historical colonial America. The days of excavation for the sake of excavation were dwindling. The Environmental Protection Agency began conducting NEPA, or National Environmental Protection Act evaluations, of proposed government projects starting in 1969. This environmental impact assessment framework eventually folded cultural resources into the mix. These collections of laws strung together from the past few decades built the foundation for modern CRM work that still operates in much the same way today. This work employs biologists and archaeologists from various specialties to comply with government standards for evaluating damage to the natural environment or cultural sites. However, the problem was, and still is, that private entities are not compelled to follow the recommendations that archaeologists and biologists put forth as the government does, no matter what damage will be caused. Despite these positive steps forward, however small they were, the Ronald Reagan administration reversed much of this control and slashed funding to federal agencies like the Bureau of Land Management and the National Park Service. This left a large infrastructure gap for maintaining this newly created system. Historical preservation and archaeological work for the benefit of tribal governments was hamstrung before it started taking form. This forced state, local, and tribal governments to form their own versions of these agencies to fill the void with meager funds to begin with. The Reagan administration's actions were meant to open more development land and further push the urban renewal agenda without regard for these cultural sites. The 1980s were punctuated with deregulation and defunding of federal agencies built to maintain these natural and cultural resources. But American corporate capitalism only strengthened. 
and with it came more devastation in the environment and material history of indigenous Americans and others. The government also stopped taking these steps to assess cultural materials. The consequences went into the public eye with a famous case involving an African slave burial ground that was accidentally excavated and horribly handled during the construction of a new General Services Administration building in New York City. When construction began in 1991, the federal government rushed to complete the project. Unfortunately, historical research into the location of the new building revealed that there was a, quote, Negro burial ground, end quote, marked as such on a 1753 map of New York. Still, the speedy project under around 400 coffins containing human remains with a backhoe while digging the foundation. Still, the government saw it as more of a legal hoop to jump through despite what the evaluation revealed. The thinking behind it, according to Thomas F. King's book, Cultural Resource Laws and Practice, states that the environmental assessment was prepared by a planning firm under contract with a design and development firm under contract to GSA to design and build the new facility. This firm, in turn, subcontracted with an archaeological company to do the cultural resource work. The resource, the burial ground, was perceived to be an archaeological site. Archaeologists could be hired to dig it up, remove its contents to a laboratory, and study and report on it. And that would be that. No one seems to have needed to find out how New York's African-American community would feel about that place. Quote. And they didn't feel good about it. Word got around that GSA was unearthing African slave graves that had been partially buried underneath Broadway already. It planned on being moved by construction archaeology crews into an inaccessible laboratory locked away by mostly white scholars. This sparked so much backlash that Congress had to step in and redesign the project to preserve the remaining bodies and rebury many of the analyzed remains that had been dug up already. The construction contractor was hit with many financial penalties. Construction had been delayed and had cost the American taxpayer around $80 million to remedy. The actual cost, however, was the desecration of these forgotten burials that horrified living descendants, something indigenous Americans had been experiencing for as long as the United States had existed. Suppose care for these communities had been considered during construction once the burial ground was discovered. In that case, much of this damage could have been averted. What's even harder to fathom was how the situation was handled by the government when a year earlier, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, had been signed into law requiring human remains to be avoided and returned to their descendants thanks to the work of tribes and their calls for respecting their ancestors' remains. The law states that all funerary objects excavated be treated with dignity and respect, and the linear descendants own these objects. This is a perfect example of how the government and businesses operate with efficiency and speed first, then think about the consequences later, as long as all pertinent laws are followed, which at the time had no mention of African Americans being included in this category. If there is any doubt about how the system of laws followed by people in power, it was the application of this care to Native American graves due to laws being signed, but not to any other group who may be affected by this practice. If respecting human remains as cultural heritage was their goal, 
the African burial ground fiasco would have never happened. But if it's not a law, it's an unnecessary step for most developmental entities, not just the government. In the following years, NHPA guidelines began giving more control over state historic preservation offices to the tribes themselves, leading to the creation of TIPOs, or Tribal Historic Preservation Offices, and conducting archaeology on their own ancestral lands where governments and companies were required to consult with before. The work of archaeologists could finally be used to answer questions that the tribes felt were essential to their communities. It had finally become standard practice for archaeologists to work alongside tribal governments to mitigate damage or record and study cultural materials belonging to federally recognized tribes and provide the same archaeological duties and service to their interests. Historically, most federally recognized tribes had drafted treaties with the U.S. government that ceded lands to them in exchange for reservations, funding for government services, food, and peace while granting them access to hunt, fish, gather on lands that they had once lived on freely. But not all tribes are federally recognized. Unfortunately, groups that aren't federally recognized are not granted the same rights as recognized tribes, since some had no chance to establish those relationships with the government before being killed by violence and disease and having their lands taken. Many agencies and CRM firms treat these groups in the same way out of a moral obligation to them, given the history of our country. Still, they are not legally guaranteed the same respect or rights as tribes that are recognized. All of this to say that this mishmash of laws that has passed since the Antiquities Act has provided a basic framework for which professional archaeologists, biologists, and geologists work with companies and agencies to ensure that damage to the environmental and cultural heritage is considered when projects on federal or state land are proposed. Reports of archaeological activities and findings must be turned into the state's SHPO and TIPO's offices before work can proceed. This also grants tribes the ability to litigate against projects through the court system that they oppose or see as harmful despite varying degrees of success. To this day, however, private companies and landowners can still destroy and loot cultural sites without any oversight as long as it does not take place on public land as they are not legally bound in the same way. That's not to discount many companies who try to reach out to TIPOs about future projects on private loot, but this is an exception to the norm. But TIPOs are valuable to tribal governments that have them as they carry out federal and tribal laws pertinent to the reservations that they serve. Their services can range from timber management, road building, and housing, not just archaeology and they perform these with their own NEPA assessments that may include their own cultural and environmental requirements put forth by the tribal government. In 2007, the UN General Assembly drafted a Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that the United States initially fought against. Unfortunately, it wasn't until 2010 that the U.S. finally signed on to the Declaration which, quote, asserts the rights of indigenous peoples to maintain, protect, and develop manifestations of their culture, their traditions and ceremonies, and their histories and languages, as well as to be safe from molestation or homelands, end quote. This hesitancy makes it hard to say whether or not this declaration will affect how the U.S. operates regarding indigenous cultural heritage. Still, there is some hope that it gives legal precedent for them to control how their ancestors and material culture are handled. 
Only a little has changed CRM since those days, except for opposing political administrations, raising and lowering the amount of funding to preserve cultural heritage and the growing or shrinking of public lands that protect these resources. While consultation with tribal governments and other stakeholders is required, abuses and loopholes are often taken advantage of. For example, no company or agency is obligated to follow the recommendations from archaeologists on a NEPA assessment if they fill out a FONSI, or finding of no significant impact. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't understand something. Yeah. Well, I mean, you break my roof. And then you sue me, you take me here to court, you lose the case, I put up $200 toward it, the kids get the rest of it? I mean, how come you don't get to pay anything? How come? Because I'm the funds! This document states that no significant environmental or cultural impacts will be present during construction if the agency or company is taking any meaningful steps to mitigate the effects. However, if there are significant impacts, the company or agency must produce an EIS, or Environmental Impact Statement, showing the public what consequences will be caused by the project, which, if done poorly, can cause an absolute public relations nightmare for the company pursuing the project. However, these impacts are sometimes not assessed as important for many reasons. This system is flawed, however, and evidence of this can be seen in the case of the Native Hawaiian struggles against NASA and the University of Hawaii building telescopes on top of the large mountain known as Mauna Kea for its lack of light pollution at the peak. This mountain is considered sacred by Native Hawaiians and has been the subject of controversy surrounding developments of the mountain itself. The land was leased to the university in 1968. It has been the location of several telescopes being built against the wishes of the local indigenous communities. NASA planned to expand the Keck Observatory and filled out an EIS, but concluded that no impact was significant since the effect was spiritual in nature. Despite pushback from the Native Hawaiians, Thomas F. King's book mentions that, quote, Clearly the project had the potential for impacts on cultural resources, and clearly it was controversial. Two of the intensity measures of significance outlined in the NEPA regulations. Yet NASA did an EIS-like environmental assessment of the project and concluded that it had no significant impact. Litigation halted the project until NASA agreed to do an EIS. The continued controversy eventually forced NASA to withdraw from the project entirely. Quote. This shows how environmental impact statements can sometimes be effective when the public knows the extent of impacts the project has on cultural sites. But this struggle wasn't over. In 2014, a project for another telescope to be built called the 30-meter telescope of Mauna Kea was proposed for construction, which the indigenous Hawaiians fought against once again. The Vice Chair of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs and a well-known Native Hawaiian human rights advocate, Mililani Trask, addressed the National Science Foundation in August of 2022 about the developments on top of the mountain. Mauna Kea means the mountain of Vakea, and the name of this place is Mauna Avakea. It was there from which Hawaii was born. For 50 years, 
we have abided by and tolerated commercial science. 50 years. The Office of Hawaiian Affairs filed the last case in 2002. That was 20 years ago. We had already been submitting testimony for 30 years and there was no corrective measure taken in any regulation. It is sacred to our people. 13 permits have been given out on Mauna Kea, but 22 buildings were constructed. You're a little bit late to come in with the National Environmental Protection Act. As a result, 30 tribal elders were arrested for protesting the construction of the new telescope. The controversy lasted until 2019 when the Hawaiian State House passed a bill protecting the mountain and creating the Mauna Kea Stewardship and Oversight Authority. An 11-member panel with two Native members that would negotiate the future uses of the mountain to prevent any new developments or expansions to existing telescopes after 2033. With America's legacy of colonial violence and racism, it's no wonder we took this long to begin shifting course towards a more equitable approach to archaeology through CRM. Archaeology has seen an uptick in Native and Black archaeologists, shaping the cultural narratives surrounding their ancestors' past. The field has gained immense insight into life ways that the previous Western perspective has been lacking. The subdiscipline of Indigenous archaeology, which is archaeology done by Indigenous people, rose out of the 70s and 80s with Native activists and scholars began incorporating their cultural knowledge and viewpoints as the direct heirs to the cultural material they studied. Cooperation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous archaeologists has become more common in parts of the country in the last few decades, providing us with a deeper understanding of the stories that the artifacts we find can tell us. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Things like oral histories told for generations amongst contemporary Native groups have given researchers valuable context for the objects they study. We need to include these perspectives in our field to know what the answers to some of these research questions could be. This knowledge is also worth preserving, much like any historical building or object, as its cultural value stretches beyond what we can see. In 2011, the Society of Black Archaeologists was formed by black scholars and professionals to lobby for properly treated cultural material related to the African diaspora in America and encourage black archaeologists to participate in the field. They strive to ensure that Americans of African descent are not just the subjects or informants of archaeological study, but are active participants in creating the historical narrative for their communities. Furthermore, they work to encourage educational access for and resolve historical exclusion of black scholars in America in shaping their cultural histories, much like indigenous archaeologists in the present day. Hopefully this will be a positive new direction for anthropology as a whole, while archaeologists work towards a more socially conscious, accurate, and just future for the study with the overreaching goal of righting the wrongs of our past. A new set of laws that are all-inclusive to everything we've discussed will only be accomplished by allowing and inviting those whose ancestors we study to have a voice in this process. All people have a First Amendment right to worship the Akua, to worship God. 
It is an inviolate right. It's in the 13th Amendment, for God's sake. Don't you all know that? Behind the Dirt was created in collaboration by the employees of GeoVisions LLC, a CRM firm based out of Word Springs, Portland, Oregon. Politicians say panic attack, the wolf pack, gonna attack like a running back.